we're going to talk about sound. And there are two people here who care a lot about it. One man who's been recognized for his incredible work in sound recording, which goes back quite a long way, but has sort of come to a quite a peak, I think, on the film The Hurt Locker. But we're going to hear from Ray about his background, about his techniques, about working on different kinds of films, his work with uh, Ken Loach. But there are two things I wanted to say as we start. That One was, if you care about filmmaking, you have to care about sound. And in the, in the I, I think it's a quote from George Lucas, um, sound is 50% of the picture, is that right? That's one very good quote. And then the French sound designer, Daniel Dehay, who said, sound design begins at the microphone. And that's why we have to talk to Ray Beckett, because that's absolutely true. Without the recordist, sound design becomes something quite cold and technical. But to get the recordings on location, that's, uh, I think, the key to a lot of very, very good filmmaking. And that's what we're going to talk about this evening. The first thing I wanted to ask you, Ray, mm -hmm. just to go over a little bit, is that uh, about your background, about yeah. where you started, where you got your experience, sure. just to lead up to some okay. of the things you would like to talk about. Yeah, well, um, I was, um, I've been in this business since I left school uh, longer ago now than I'd like to imagine, in the late, very last year of the 1960s. Um, I was lucky enough to get an apprenticeship with a company called Alan King Associates, who were a collective of filmmakers, um, mainly doing documentaries, some of them doing feature films as well. Um, Ivan Sharrock, another British Oscar winner, was, was one of those people. Christian Wangle was another. Mike Dodds, uh, John Davey, these, these cameramen in their time. But they, they evolved a system of, um, of documentary making where the, the camera and the, the recorder suddenly became separated. We were at a time when Originally, when you were shooting documentaries, in order to keep sync between camera and sound, you need an umbil umbilical cable, which dictated the way that documentaries were worked, because obviously the sound recorders could only go in the same direction as the, the camera person, so it was linked with a, an umbilical cable. The generation of French cameras that came along late 60s stroke early 70s, like the Eclair and the, the ACL, had crystal control motors, um, so that you could actually separate uh, sound and picture. I think the Pennebakers in America yeah. and the Maisels brothers had also um, originated that technique. And um, Alan King, being a Canadian, had, was obviously aware of that and had, had brought it over to the UK. Mm -hmm. But coming back to me, um, I began as an apprentice in, in a, a department that's now redundant, a department called Sound Transfer. So I was responsible. When the, when the tapes came in from the Nagras that the guys were using on location... Uh, my job was to hook them up and um, play them back in sync with the, the camera. There were various ways of doing that. <coughs> but basically, you, you sat it on a machine that, that kept the, 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 the playback speed of the recorder stable. Um, you take these things for granted nowadays with digital. It's just not an issue. But back in the analog days, it was a big issue. So that was um, transferring it from tape onto yeah, yeah, mag film. Yeah, it was transferring it from, from tape onto either 16mm sprocketed film or onto 35mm sprocketed film, which was then put on a, either a Moviola or a Steenbeck and mm. played in sync for the, for the editor, for the picture editor. Yeah. In doing that, um, it was a golden opportunity, really, for me to, to, to develop the art of listening, which is mm. 
base of being a sound recordist, apart from obviously a technical knowledge you really need. You need to know what all the buttons and various flashing lights do, what their potential is. But the bottom line for anything you do is, I mean, it seems obvious, but it's just listening, being able to, to listen to what sounds on mic, what's off mic, what the background noise is doing in relation to the, the sound that you're trying to, to get, what the overall effect is um, from, from, from the recording, whether, whether it's portraying the scene you want or if things are, are taking away from it. So I did three years on a daily basis transferring sound from documentaries and, and more interestingly later on from feature films so that these experience mixes were on the set, things like Oh Lucky Man um, and Pulp, um, we would we would have you know piled that big at the end of a day of, of rushes from the set. These were twenty minute rolls, mm. so you could easily have ten twenty minute rolls. It was a busy day, mm. and I was always listen, listening to the film rather than seeing the film, which was an interesting yeah. viewpoint, you know, because um, I had the film in my mind that often wasn't anything like the film that eventually was released. Mm. But I also had in my mind the way that the perspective worked. Without seeing the picture, I knew that's got to be a wide shot because there's a lot of reverb around the voice. Um, that's, yeah. a, that's a tighter shot because the reverb's gone down, things like that. And um, I would you know, be asking the, the, the sound mixers when they got back how they did that scene yesterday, you know, whether they used plant mics, whether they used booms. And, and in those days, radio mics were very rudimentary and extremely mm. unreliable. So they weren't used very much, and you always knew when it was a radio mic because basically it, it didn't sound very nice. And the, the mixers knew that. And wherever possible, and still today, wherever possible, if you can get away without a radio mic, it's usually your better option is to use a, a well-placed boom. Mm. Well, well 90, a good 95% of the times will give you... Mm. give you better sound than a, a badly placed radio mic. Just interrupting you for a moment. Mm -hmm. You talked about, at this point, with the Nagra and the Eclair, mm -hmm. sound and picture can move apart. Yes. And a lot of people would say, what's the point of that? I mean, right. especially people who use camera yes. mics. Yeah. Well, Why would you ever want yeah. to separate? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I was really disappointed when the very first generation of then ENG cameras came out, because to my horror... There were people shooting documentaries with a video camera with an umbilical lead between mm. the camera and the... the in those days, Going the recorder pack. Yeah. Um, the, the, there are two advantages. One advantage is that sometimes, you know, you can actually get right in. So if someone from the, the back row there suddenly talks, if you've, if you've got built a really good working relationship with the cameraman, you can zip in, drop on your knees with a gun mic... They will frame you out, mm -hmm. and you can actually get that sound to match the, the... These cameras, invariably, for documentary, they'd have a, an ingenue zoom, a 10-to-1 zoom. So they had a reasonable zoom range. Yeah. So that you, rather than being stuck next to the camera at the end of this cable, you could actually physically move in. The camera could, could frame you out, and you could get sound that would better match the mm. picture. Another reason for, for having separation is... With ENG cameras, when you cut picture, you've cut sound. So if the cameraman's got a shot, but he's not necessarily listening to the content, yeah. someone could be in the middle of the best quote of the whole film, yeah. and it's gone forever. Whereas with a, with, a, with a separate recorder, you can then continue, and they can run it on as a wild track that they can then lay onto another shot. You know, you've, you've got all these, these various options. So 
in a way, it, it's, uh, it, this is all very good practice for thinking about the relationship of sound and picture. Yes. They don't always have to be locked together. There is this... Yeah, it's, it's, it's like a dance. A, yeah, 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 exactly. The I best, mean, the best yeah. documentary crew is when you, you saw them w- w- working. A lot of times, I mean, I'm thinking of uh, Charles Stewart and Malcolm yeah. Hurst, mm-hmm. were another team that I greatly admired. And um, they would actually... The sound man would be looking, as well as recording, would be looking for the cameraman because obviously your eyes to the viewfinder you're missing things and he would actually whisper to the cameraman mm. and say you know pan left third person on the road mm. and there'd be something else going on there maybe another conversation and by that time the sound man's already got there and then camera comes to it and it mm. becomes very fluid mm. very almost effortless you know and is this how you became involved with Ken Loach and well Ken Loach comes yeah. quite a bit down the line because right. um I, I left um, the apprenticeship. I went freelance. I did lots and lots of documentaries, working with various cameramen, Chris Morfitt, uh, Mike Fox, um, and Barry Aykroyd, doing, uh, doing documentaries for the BBC, Granada, various, various, Barry various shot people. Hurt Barry who shot Hurt Locker. Yeah. Um, and we, we built up a working relationship, you know, a way of not only listening, but also looking a little bit for, mm-hmm. for documentaries. Then I took a little bit of a, a side... A sideways jump. I, I went into a recording studio for a year, and because I'm I'm passionate about music recording as well, and I wanted to learn how to record music efficiently mm. in a documentary yeah. environment, like how to mic up a, a band on stage quickly. Um, so I developed those skills, and then I started doing some music documentaries, very small scale ones, but I really enjoyed them. Um, and then I was very lucky to take a complete change, and I was actually asked by Ishmael Merchant to do a documentary with him in India in yep. 1981, a film called The Courtesans of, of Bombay, um, which was using all the techniques of documentary that I, by that time, got quite comfortable with. Um, and then he then asked me to, to do his next feature film, and I thought, my God, am I ready for this? You know, it's, mm. it's a complete jump up. Um, anyway, we, we, we went ahead and we did it. Um, that was heat and dust. Um, and I realised that although it's much more formal, the way of shooting, I could actually use some of the techniques I learned in documentary mm-hmm. to help the way that I was working um, in the features film, feature film world. For instance, um, a lot of times in those days, maybe still today, there was a convention for drama films that you only mic the person who's on camera because the actors, actor one will speak, there'll be a convenient little pause enough to get the scissors in, yep. and actor two will speak. It's very kind of formalised. So sometimes you only ever mic'd the person on camera. And that just felt anathema to me. I just felt That's, yeah. there's something not right about yeah. that. You know, I just want to mic both sides, even if they're off camera. Yeah. And then that, that enables you to go into the world of overlaps. You know, suddenly you don't have to shout overlap and redo it you can have an overlap and provided your both mics have, have picked up their respective actor with enough fidelity that can be used mm. you can use the overlap and but, that's sorry no no go yeah. ahead Keep well that's, that's really yeah. where the link comes After I did another two yeah. films with, with Ishmael a couple of other features and then in the early 90s um, Barry contacted me to work with Ken and I went to meet Ken and we had a good mm. you know interview relationship and um, I began working on Raining Stones, which was the first film I, I worked on with him. 
and then we were really back into the documentary world yeah. because Ken won't do any ADR he just will not do it doesn't do any post does he it? doesn't do any post at all sound post no oh. so basically I had to provide him with, with everything that Barry was seeing um, so I went back to the, the documentary techniques that I'd, I'd learnt to, to, to basically mic up all actors plus have a roving boom and record them as well as possible in one mm. shot, you know. And, and in a way, the music actually helped me, mm-hmm. in a way, because I'd, I'd got used to miking bands, you know, going into a nightclub three hours before the off, miking up the band, mixing it to stereo, and then just, they turn over and you record it. Mm. And it's the same set of skills, basically. It's sort of predicting when the guitar yeah. solo is going to come, whatever, you know, on a basic but level. I th- it, it was a very interesting time in British filmmaking, because you did have this mix... From documentary to features, yeah. fiction, back again. Mm-hmm. People like Ken Loach working across both. Yes. I was working at the British Film Institute at the time, and there were a number of filmmakers, Derek Jarman, um, Ken Russell, who I mm. think you also worked yes. with, yes. Uh, Sally Potter, um, Peter Greenaway, all meshing together using yeah. techniques mm-hmm. from documentary into fiction and back again, Yes, which have sort of woven their way into the kind of filmmaking people are doing now with yes. Um, digital. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and yeah. also, I mean, the, the equipment has also come on so much over the years. I mean, the, we, we were trying to push the envelope, as it were, to get as much as possible onto two tracks. And as I'll, I'll show you in a clip that we'll play in a minute, mm. um, that had its limitations. You could only push it so far. Yeah. Because, you know, there are so, only so many permutations you can do with two tracks and keep control afterwards. Um but I mean, basically, the track count's gone up. The um, the quality of the recordings gone up immeasurably. Um, you know, you now don't even think about whether the machine you've got will have the same spec as the machine you hired last week, <laughs> because it's digital. And provided that the the basic machine's working within its spec, you know, it's going to sound as good as the the other one on the rack in the in the hire company or whatever. You know, it's a an inherent quality of, of digital that it's flat response. Yeah. No, very low noise. So those things that we used to worry about all the time, we, we now don't worry about so much, mm. which has been very liberating because now you can really concentrate on listening, which is what we're about anyway. Mm. You know, just listening for perspectives and things. Yeah. And uh, do you want to go into your first clip? Yeah, if um, I could just do a preamble. About yeah, it. for um, and freedom. Yeah, I just want to show you three clips, and we'll, we'll talk between each one. First ones a kind of an illustration of where we were really pushing the envelope and it was beyond us and um, looking at it now I wince in, in several places because yeah. I know that now with the equipment we've got now with the radio mics we've got now yeah. uh, it could have been a lot a lot better and a lot deeper I'll talk about it after we've seen it right and this so, is from Land and Freedom yeah this is this is from Land and Freedom it's towards the end of the film where the militia are finally disarmed by the um, by the, the the army the Republican army who want to disband all the militias. And just to put it in context, what yeah. year was this made? This was 1994 we shot it, I think. It was right. released in 95. And mixed, not in mono, but pretty close. Yes, yeah. I mean, the, the dubbing mix, as you're, you're probably here, is, is, is centred on the centre speaker. There's not very much space in it. And I'll also talk about yeah, that. Yeah, because this is something well. that you want to get into. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. Land and Freedom, and just... It's an it's a incredibly engaging scene, as anybody who knows the film will know, but try to pay attention to the sound. Oh, 
setup yeah okay um the setup with this was um we had two cameras both on longish lenses both more or less next to each other looking down on this scene um it was a, a low uh, field where the where the um militia was spread and then up on the rise you see you see the um the, the trucks come in with the republican army so it was a sort of two level set um shot from or mainly from from one side with two long lenses scanning the scene. Mm-hmm. Now that posed lots of problems. I mean, my my instinct for doing that, had it been handheld, was to to go in with 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 booms um, on on each camera so that they could pick out dialogues. Um, that wasn't possible. The other option um, would have been to to mic everyone. Now, even with the radio mics at, at, that we had at that time, 
that wasn't possible and, and realistically you wouldn't make everyone you'd, you'd make key characters um, we, two reasons we, we didn't have um, enough radio mics to do that three reasons the radio mics that we had at the time weren't really reliable enough to, to pick up that kind of range and, and fidelity mm-hmm. and the other the, the main reason was we were mixing down to two tracks and there wasn't going to be any post sync and as we were working as, as quickly as I like to work I didn't feel comfortable that I could make sure that, that I was matching whatever camera Ken might want to use because the cameras were filming opposite sides you know mm-hmm. there was one camera on the on the Republican army side another one down on the crowd sometimes two down on the crowd so you couldn't see what was going yeah. on and you're so, not in contact with the camera people no I didn't have a monitor yeah we didn't have monitors at that time you know we, we use them a bit more now yeah. sometimes um, so basically what I had to do was pair it right down um, and to use <coughs> use radio mics on on key people like obviously the the Republican commander had a mic mm-hmm. um, I think one, uh, one or two of them Lisha did but what I, what really jars with me when I watch it now is there are certain key lines I can see them this close but I can't hear them and it makes me yeah. really frustrated you know I'd like to rewind and have another crack at that scene. But the woman who was mm-hmm. eventually shot, yes. is she radio mic? I think she was radio mic, right, right. yes, for her, okay. for her screen. Yeah. She may have been boomed. It's a while yeah. ago now, so there may yeah. have been a boom on her there. But these are, these are long... I mean, Ken always uses long lenses from a long way away. He, he never uses wide lenses close up. Um, so that, that was the format he'd set for the, the way he was going to shoot that scene. So right. that to fit in. So um, there, are, there are certain things in there which I feel are, are really um, lacking. Uh, I'd really like to, to do again, you know. Um, one, one other thing uh, mm-hmm. about it is it's mixed down the centre. Um, I prefer a little bit of space in the sound. Um, now, it's very difficult to get space in, in, in that sound because you basically got radio mic sources all coming in. And these and are all monoral. On two tracks, yeah. yeah. And you don't really have any, many options to... To, to spread the sound even if you wanted to the other more importantly we didn't have any room for an ambience mic it's something that I like to use is a, is a stereo mic way back just looking over the scene that's recorded on its own dedicated tracks that's, that's not recording dialogue in fact you don't want it to record dialogue you want it to record the, the surroundings around the Wind, scene atmosphere. Yeah, to give a bit of space around mm-hmm. the, the scene mm-hmm. so that was lacking so it's, it's raw radio mics and I always feel that raw radio mics sound like raw radio mics. It's right. very perspectiveless sound. Um, when you're recording a scene like that, yeah, what are you listening for? Are you just trying to well, get I'm, whatever you can? Well, or, I'm or, trying or? to follow the the, the, the stream of, of mm. the scene. You know, like the what they say. Well, obviously, I needed to get everything that the commander said because yeah. that influenced the the reactions of the the militia. Mm-hmm. But I also needed key key bits from the militia as well mm. and the, for me, I mean the worst one for me is is when, when Blanca is shot mm. you know, and Michelangelo is, is holding her and there's yeah. this, a guttural scream yes. that comes yeah. out of his mouth that you can't hear Right. You know. now Ken might have decided he liked that yeah. you know? he didn't have a choice, that was the yeah. way it was yeah. but at least if it was recorded the director's got an artistic choice, you know, you, might, you can dip it lose it, mm. or, or use it Right. But that choice right. was taken away, it just straight wasn't there you know and this scene is a fairly long take yes i mean he he always shoots long takes he he g's everything up gets everything ready 
Actresses? It, mm, no. Okay. Not for a scene like Every this. Every take is a take. Yeah, the first uh, time uh, they went in, I yeah. remember in the morning, it's on the, the film of, if, if anybody's got Land and Freedom, they, they watch the, um, the film of the film. He talks about it, his feelings before mm. we shot. Um, he gets everything in position. The trucks are in position where they start from. The militia are in position. Everybody's in position. Um, and then um, he just goes for it. Take one. And he follows the whole action right through to logical conclusion. You know, then, then we have a break, have lunch, <coughs> maybe, and then the squibs are put back on for the, for the gunshots, everything. Yeah. And then he goes for take two. He'll, he'll always try and use take one if he can, because he feels that that's where the real emotion is. You know, you, yeah. when, you, when you know what's happening, you can sort of telescope it a little bit. And, and what uh, is your kind of preparation with him or with the well, production I mean, manager? Yeah, I mean, my preparation is obviously to, to, to make sure that I, I've got good positions for the, the effects that I need, like the, the entrance of the, the, the vehicles, for instance. <coughs> mm-hmm. I, had, I had someone on a long cable on a mic, and I had to work with Barry to make sure that no matter where he panned to, mm-hmm. that the person with that mic was going to be out of frame because I really needed the sound of that approaching uh, convoy. Yeah. To, to really be present on the soundtrack. Mm. Um, and then I obviously needed to establish from Ken the key lines that he needed mm-hmm. and who was going to be saying them and make sure that they were mic'd, ready, ready to go. I think it was probably about four radio mics I had mm. out. But when you're um, starting out on a film like that, yeah. what are the kinds of discussions you're having um, with the production team yeah, to I mean, get what you need? Yeah, I mean, Ken is a kind of a... He's a special case because... Yeah. There are other directors like him, I understand, but, I mean, it will all go from the fact that he won't use ADR. So his basic philosophy, and that goes all the way down the line from costume to, to mm. set design to the locations, obviously. Mm-hmm. He will actually put in... He has done on films where, where you've got a location that's over a noisy road. He's actually put in tertiary glazing. I mean, there's double glazing, mm-hmm. but this is a main road, you know, with, with lorries and trucks and buses. And he's actually got the... the, the, the the um, set department to actually yeah. put in three-eighth-inch plexiglass over a window just to bring the level down. So he sets the, the field for me, yeah. you know, to, to work in. And then once that's done, it's up to me to, to do it. Right. So he will he will always be thinking about the sound. He'll choose quiet locations mm. and, and make sure that when the drama begins, there's nothing untoward to, to stop it, you know, wherever possible. And at the end of a take... If it hasn't quite worked, um, do you do wild tracks? Do you? Yeah, I mean, you try to. Although Ken doesn't doesn't, doesn't like that. No. I mean, it, it feels false. Yeah. You know, after yeah. the event. I mean, unless it's immediately after the event. Yeah. I mean, that's one point I wanted to to make. I mean, if if you've got a wide shot and you've not got the sound for the wide shot, it's a lot better to go to the director straight after and say, "Look, I've not got it on that wide shot, but mm. you're going to want to use the wide shot. Let's go in right now." Why the actors are still fresh, got the feeling, and let's just just go go through the scene again. Let the actors just play it. And we'll recall wild track, maybe two, possibly three, if you've got time times, and you'll find the sound editor can can slot it over the wide shot really quite well. Mm. And try and use a perspective that's not too close, a sort of mid perspective, you know, and then it, then it will match the wide shot really well. A really close up sound on a wide shot sometimes sounds a bit weird. Mm. A medium perspective you know instead of having the boom there pull it out a bit and just yeah. get a little bit of air around it actually we talk about this idea of wild tracks 
Mm. The idea coming from working with film, mm. you don't want to run film while you're recording yes. wild track sound. Yeah. But now working on digital, mm. they, reco- they record picture all the time, don't they? There is no... Or do you still do wild tracks? Oh, no, I still, still, still do, do wild, wild tracks. tracks yeah. Without picture. Without yeah. picture, okay. yeah. Yeah, lots yeah. of times. Uh, I mean, yeah. effects tracks, things like that. Yeah, you know, yeah. Cars up and past, things sure. like that. Yeah. Any, anything that the sound editor or sound designer is going to need, you're going to try and... You got. I mean, on the set, you've got to be in the mindset of the next person who's going to take over the job from you. Mm. And also, it helps a lot to be in communication with that person. I mean, wh- one of the special things about the Locker was before we ever shot, I was in extensive email com- yeah. um, communication with Paul Otterson, the, the sound designer, um, about the, the philosophy of the film, um, about the fact that there's not going to be very much music in the film, the fact that Catherine want, wants sound that she can use straight yeah. off the bat. You yeah. know, she doesn't really use much ADR. Right. Um, that's really valuable. Um, a lot of times with, with films, you don't even know who the sound person is until mm. you finish shooting. So you've almost got to be in the mind of a, an imaginary person. You put yourself in the mind of that sound designer and you think, if I were getting these tracks back right now, what would I need yeah. to do? Yeah. You know, how would I need to bridge the gap between two different scenes? There was a plane on that last scene We've now come around on the reverse. There's no plane. It's a modern-day yeah. film. Mm. Record a plane. You know, if you can, on the location, mm. just hold everything quiet. Let a, another plane go by. Because jets sound much the same, really. But you're saying you stop the whole crew and you say, I'm going to record a if plane. If the philosophy yeah. is there, yeah. uh, you, 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 can, you can shout as much as you like. But if you've yeah. not got the, the backing of the directors, the producers, the ADs, Forget it. I mean, we're talking about a philosophy that runs right through the mm. filmmaking process, you know. If you've got the philosophy that these things... If you call for... You won't call for it if it's not necessary, but if you do call for it, there's a good reason. Yeah. You shouldn't need to waste time explaining what that reason is on the set. It should be possible to... You know, if they're, if they're doing a, a different camera position, they could just hold for a second. You're ready to go. The other thing is, if you were asking for something, you better be ready to mm. turn over right <clears> then and there. You know, so if I, for instance, you know, um, chiming clocks is another one. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you get clock mm-hmm. chimes. So the next time the hour comes up, yeah. just yeah. warn the AD. Next time the hour comes up, please just stop. Everybody on set, hit record. I mean, you've bridged the gap, you know. And presumably on a film like Ken Loach's, mm-hmm. everybody is thinking this way. Yeah. you're thinking as a team. Yeah, you are. You're, you're, you're very aware understands. of... Yeah, I mean, with Ken Loach, I mean, he will record with extras talking, not miming, but actually really mm. chatting. Mm. And sometimes you're pushing the edge a little bit much because you always get the inevitable extra with the loud right. laugh that you've not picked up until the take. Yeah. And then it's sort of frantically getting the AD to get that extra to just be a bit quieter. But the effect is actually really quite quite vibrant. Yeah. You know, lots of sort of pub scenes. We're not showing any this evening. Yeah. But but they work because they, the people in the background really are talking. And, and the usual, the traditional way is everybody minds. Everybody minds, yeah, yeah, yeah. But sometimes what happens yeah. is you shoot a, a restaurant scene and everybody's miming and you get to the end of the day and you ask the script supervisor how long, what's the cut length of that yeah. scene? Yeah. And they say, what, two minutes? Yeah. And the AD says, well, I'll give you 30 seconds. You know, yeah. It's not going to get anywhere. Yeah. And also, there's also that subliminal thing, I find, if you see an extra in the background, it's nice to to have yeah. the, the the lip sync of them, mm. even though obviously they it just adds to the realism yeah. of the scene. 
just helps to should we look at that again? Yeah, sure. Is there any, anything we should point out? Because I think, well, I it's, think really, it's always good to repeat. Yeah, sure. I mean, like it, all, all I wanted you to see is probably something that was obvious to you the first time, is, is the gaps there. You know, the gaps in the close-up where, where people are obviously screaming at each other, but you can't hear what they're saying. Right. That, that's, all, that's the reason I wanted to show it. One technical question is yeah. when you're booming a scene like that yeah. and... Uh, the various people, the woman coming up screaming, mm. uh, the general or the captain shooting mm-hmm. the gun. Where mm. is the boom? Well, on a scene like that, it's almost too dangerous to use a boom. Mm. You know, sometimes when it's under slightly more control, right. like during the Hurt Locker, for instance, okay. um, I use radio booms now right. because the right. cable is such yeah, an encumbrance yeah. Yeah. and the, the quality of the, the packs I use are, are good enough yeah. to, to use a, radio, a, a good boom swing with a radio boom. Right. It's very, very deft yeah. to move around. Plus that relationship, which goes back to documentary, between the boomer and the camera. I mean, Barry's very good at this because he, he will basically let a boom come in and if the boom's <laughs> further out than his shot, he'll do that. Mm. Or if he needs to widen, he'll do that before he needs to widen. Yeah. You know, old documentary tricks, you yeah. know. Just yeah. a little little code between the camera mm. and the, the sound that helps them work together. Always one eye looking. One eye looking, looking yeah. yeah, yeah off you, to the side. Yeah, yeah. and you're, you're in safety, you yeah. know. And then if you're a bit too close, he'll, he'll do yeah. that. Yeah. Never frantically, just, you know. Yeah. And that you build up a kind of relationship. The boom swinger and the, the DP builds, or the operator mm. build up a relationship mm. there. And in this kind of film, okay. but on this one, it was because it was the first take. Yeah, and those pans, you you really weren't sure if he was going to need to pan left, pan right, mm-hmm. and you didn't really want to pan through the boom. Right, you know, because right. uh, although you could cut it out, yeah. you know, it ruins the shot. So yeah. we yeah we made the decision not to use booms except for the, the I think we had a boom on the commander of the militia because okay. he was stable, yeah. he knew where he was. Yeah. And on the, as I said earlier, the car, the, the vehicles coming in. Yeah. But other than that, it was it was radio mic sources and maybe a couple of booms as well, right. under under the the shot, but quite a way under the shot, yeah. just to fill in. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody have a question? No. Okay. Oh, well, the guns. Oh, there we go. Oh. Like yeah. With blanks that made a real gun noise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's well, a bit. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's interesting the guns because. Um, that's fine. Okay, we'll that's take fine. some questions. That's fine. fine. Yeah, I mean the the guns were obviously loaded with blanks. <laughs> um, now there's a big question about blanks sounding like live rounds. Now I've I've heard military people say that a, a live round doesn't sound like a blank. Um, but to your because you only ever hear blanks in in movies anyway, the the, the sound of that is. Mm. Gunshot, right? You know. But but leading on from that, uh, the, the the we recorded that film on two machines. We had a we had a that was another point I've not brought out on that particular sequence. What I was trying to do was do A and B rolls. Mm-hmm. I had a I had a DAT machine, actually I remember now. Right. I had a DAT machine with a basic stereo mic on it to try and get this ambience. They never used it in the end. Mm. And then I also had um, the the stereo Nagra that was recording the dialogue. Now, we did a test where we, we plugged the mics through a Y-link from the mixer into the, into the analog Nagra and into the, the DAT machine. Mm-hmm. Set the DAT so it was not overloading, it was quite happy. Uh, the mixer so it was quite happy. Recorded some test gunshots. We did this during a wild track. And um, when you played back the DAT, it was, technically it was right. 
but it didn't sound right because it was too mm. clean. Mm. There wasn't enough distortion on it mm. because actually when you hear a gunshot, your ear is actually distorting. Right. It's pushing right. your ear into that sort of non-linear range and the sound that you hear when you hear a gunshot mm-hmm. is actually the sound of your ear physically distorting. You mean a real gunshot? A real gunshot, yeah. Right. yeah. Right. So in order to get that across to the screen, you needed to have a way of distorting mm. the sound, but not in that nasty, raspy way, but in a, in a sort of compressive way. Mm. And that's what analog tape does. You know, it was the fact that the, the stereo Nagra would quite happily um, distort on the gunshot, and the result would sound to you like a real gunshot, right. whereas the DAT wasn't distorting at all. It was just taking the waveform, and it just didn't sound right. Mm. You know, it just didn't sound right. Um, Mind you, most people, their only experience of a gunshot is a movie. Yeah, yeah. So that's right. we don't know what guns are. No, 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 yeah. that's right. But, but have, actually being there and listening to the sounds of the blanks, yeah. were, I was trying as much as possible to get that sound on, onto right. the tape, you know. But basically, mm. I, has that answered your questions? Yeah. 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 Somebody else <laughs> wondered if the limiter was kicking in. Well, it was, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, 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 the Nagra limiter was doing its part as well, but it was also tape limiting. Mm. Um, you had to be a bit careful because if it, if it saturated the tape enough to, to limit, you had to store it yes. tail out because otherwise you were going to get print through. This was an analogue phenomenon that's probably unknown to a lot of... Uh, I remember. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. is, you know, it, it prints through the, the, the thickness of the tape to the layer behind. Yeah, so you hear an echo on the tape of, what's com- of yeah. a loud sound that's coming. Yeah, before. and by storing it end out, you make yeah. sure the echo was afterwards rather yeah. than yeah. before. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Um, so you mentioned earlier that um, you're talking about quality of devices, but I think it's down to personal preference, isn't it? In terms of what kind of. Yeah, I mean. Because you, you just mentioned now that analog sounds a lot warmer. Well, yeah, I don't, I, yeah, I, I don't want to get too far beyond that this we're, we're talking about now we're talking about a dat machine that was 16 bit without any limiters on it at all um and i was always unhappy with the sound of the a to d's it was early days you know those 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 early dat machines they they, they the a to d's really still needed more work plus this transition from 16 to 24 was like night and day for me you know the 16 bit mm-hmm. when when i listen back now i can hear a sort of graininess in the sound that's not there with 24-bit. And you're right, I mean, today you can go out and you could, there are three, four, um, probably five uh, big manufacturers making um, multi-track machines, and you can record things on each machine and, and then, you know, do a double-blind test, and it'd be really hard to, to, mm. to decide which machine it was recorded on. Now, I mean things like microphones. You know, microphones have a quality, but each one has a different quality. And I know some mixers really like Sennheisers because they like the sound of Sennheisers. Other mixers, myself included, enjoy the sound of Sherps because there's a, a sound there. They're both technically, you could go to a lab and, and spec them and they'd look more or less the same, but there's this indefinable quality of a, a particular mic. Is it the, the equivalent of a film stock? Probably, yeah, um, or a lens even. Or a lens, yeah. Or a lens, yeah. or a combination of the two. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very subtle thing. Yeah. And you only really notice it after you've used that equipment for a little while. You know, you've, you've used other equipment for a little while. And it's very personal, you know. It's, it's just, yeah, mm. it's a personal preference. You know, you, you, may, you may like Sennheiser's, you know, more than your shirts. It's fine. They're both good. 
just different. I think it, it, there's an interesting point about that, that in a way the, the sound of a film can come about through all of these little intangibles, what yeah. the sound recordist likes, certain things that the sound editor might like, that yeah. are personal preferences, but yeah. together they create a style. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've evolved over the years, I've evolved a kit that now seems to work, and it, it, and it involves radio mics with heads that match the sound of the boom mic I'm using. That's mm. quite important, mm. I find. You know, I mean, uh, the Sherps has got a very smooth sound, and I use DPA um, heads on the, the radios. So the sound editor's not mixing chalk and cheese. They're, they're mixing, you know, yeah. cheese with another slice of cheese. Kind of <laughs> cheese, yeah. So it's, it, they're, they're a little bit closer, you know. Yeah. So there's an easier match between the two. Mm. And that's something you only evolve after years, really. You know, you, you, try, you try a sink and then you try something else, or Sennheiser or something, mm. and then you, you settle on one that, that, that works for you, you know. But have you ever had a director contribute to this discussion about how you're going to mic, what you're going to use, well, what's it going to sound like? Well, I mean, obviously, the, yeah, I mean, it, it gets down also to costume department. Yeah. And it also gets down to this thing that I feel that every film needs. It's a proper pre-production meeting mm. where everybody present, everybody's present. Mm. Um, because co- the, the number of um, conflicts on set between costume and sound are more than a lot of other departments yeah. actually mm. because a lot of times when you're designing you can have a, a, a I mean I'm thinking of a recent example a, a, a tie that was absolutely historically right that this mm. person was really wearing this tie mm. problem is when we came to put our mics on that had worked on every other tie in the whole film this tie had got this creak that you couldn't get rid of and we needed that mic because mm. it's the, the scene started with a big wide shot right this yeah. person walks in, dialogue, only off the tie, you know, got to use it. Yeah. And there's the creak on it. And then the, the hiatus came mm. because I said, look, there's a problem. We're trying to mic the, right. the tie. <laughs> and, it's, you know. and then the actor starts getting really nervous and he goes, look, we've got to resolve this, you know. And then the director gets involved and I sort of say to the director, well, you know, we really have a, a bit of a problem here because I've, I've used all my techniques to mic the, the tie. I've run out of options. And he said, yeah. okay, change the tie. Because that was his decision, or her decision, yeah. ultimately. You know, because they, they then would need to be aware of the ramifications yeah. Yeah, exactly. of that decision. Yeah. So they could equally have said, no, I love the tie visually. It's got to be, we've got to use that tie. In which case, you've got to ADR. Because yeah. well, at least on that, on that one yeah. shot, yeah. you've got to ADR yeah. or wild track it. Yeah. When you come in close, then you can start booming it. But yeah. at least on that, you've lost the option. Yeah. On that one Which shot. Which has a, a money and a time yeah. factor. Yeah, and I mean, how it fell it. in that particular case was they did change the tie. Yeah. They found another tie the same colour, but of course the costume designer was really well, upset course, because yes, they'd yes. really researched this tie, found the actual tie, basically, that this person mm. was wearing at that time. Otherwise, it becomes a little bit like a Jacques Tati film where the tie is yes. making <laughs> yeah. noises, becoming yeah, yeah. a character. But it's that sort of give and take yeah. that happens in, during every film shoot, that yeah. different departments, sometimes their conflicts come. Yeah. And it's part of working together uh, for one goal. But as you said, understanding the ramifications from as you pass your work down the line, yes. what that means. Yes. And, and at that point, it might seem like, don't worry about the mic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But think of when you think about what happens in post. Exactly. And that, and that was a director's decision. It's always the director's decision. Yeah. You know, if they decide to go with it, then you just go with it, provided they are aware of the ramifications. Yeah.
Um, oh, do we have somebody in the booth? Because I was going to say maybe we should go on to the next clip, but we seem. No, there's one question here on the side. Is there a question yeah. on the side? There's Sorry. a question way over yeah. on the side. Sorry, yeah. um, just asking about the preoccupation. I mean, I'm a sound recordist as well. The preoccupation with uh, a director and how you deal with a director who's preoccupation is visual stimulus. Yeah. I mean, they're always interested in the camera angles and the yeah. way we're going to shoot it. Yeah. The production design, the type of cameras, the type of lenses. Mm-hmm. They do it all intricately. Mm. But they don't... I mean, from my point of view, I mm. want to use a shirt, I want to use a Neumann, I want to use a, a, a microphone that's going to give you very good, uh, you know, capturing a, a very full-range signal. Yeah. But what happens when you have a director, and it happens to me all the time, I mean, you must have had the same with Hurt Locker, where, where the director is visually stimulated by, you know, we, we, we need to capture this, we need to capture that, and the, the cinematography becomes the main focus mm-hmm. and then you're I mean with all due respect I find lapel mics I use uh, as you're saying DPAs I use Sankins I mean I have a, a, a you know and you do get good results but mm. they are a compromise oh definitely they are a compromise Absolutely, because yeah. they limit on the capsule the capsule is very small mm-hmm. and the, the transmitter is uh, it's got a you know it's got a mechanical limiting function yes which gives you Absolutely no comparison. I mean, no, no. You can come close to uh, a Sankin or a DPA uh, lapel mic. Oh, It'll come close to a Sherps, but when you when you actually measure it in a cinema, mm-hmm. there's no comparison. There's no comparison between a lapel mic and a and a, a decent mm. quality condenser mic. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, so that is a huge compromise. That's like telling a cinematographer. No, we can't shoot on 35. Yes. We have to shoot on Super 8, eight. Yes. or VHS. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? Because yes. actually you're, 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 <laughs> saying that, you're saying that, okay, it's okay, we can use radio mics. And of course, I've got 100 radio mics I can wheel out. Mm-hmm. But the quality, and, and you know what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. the quality of a Sherp's oh, absolutely. At, this, at this distance is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Or a Neumann, or mm-hmm. Whatever the, the circumstance of the yeah. acoustic environment, yeah. you choose the correct microphone. You're an acoustician. You're mm. you're an audiographer. You know what you're doing. Mm. You, know, you have the right the correct microphone. Mm-hmm. But you suddenly get told, no, fuck it, put a lapel mic on. Yeah, well, this I mean, is that's, that's to me. It's, it's the most horrible. <laughs> Before thing. we go on, <laughs> um, yeah, how many people in the room are directors? Take note. <laughs> um, be- before you get a chance to mm. answer that, mm. we're we're back up and running on the Sorry. projection. That's okay, okay. I will we'll answer. We'll it. come back we'll to just... that because it is a, a very important point. Mm. Um, let's just play this clip again, and then after this, we'll go into your second clip. Yes, okay. Soon after, because we're going to get into a, a time okay. thing. Um, okay, run it, Ufa. Well, let me let me answer that one. Yeah. Answer Absolutely, yeah, yeah, of course. I don't know if there's anything to answer, really. Well, no, there is, actually, yeah. Um, I just wanted to say I, I completely agree with you. Um, I've been very lucky because I've, I've worked with directors who, um, who are rightly concentrating on the visual element. I mean, it's, it's something... I mean, I've just worked with a director who's totally the visual element. I, I wasn't in, in consulted about anything really I mean I, all, even knowing what, what the next shot was it was sort of Chinese whispers 
And so I used my documentary um, knowledge to, um, to try and um, to second guess what was happening next, you know. But we did mic everybody up with, 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 with um, the values on, on the Hurt Locker. You know, everybody's got, got DPAs in the helmets. You know, they're all sitting there in the helmets. But they're also, we also had a, a roving boom. So I was trying to, you know, go do that fine line because I knew that I would rather mic that with a boom. But I've got this, this, this mic here. I've got a very good pack. I mean, I was using Electrosonics, which has got limiters in it, but they provided it's set properly, they're pretty nice sounding. You know, they, they don't really get in the way of the sound. And um, if you can get if you can get this the the boom in when you can, that will help a lot. But I agree with you; it's 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 a compromise. Um, I don't really know what the answer is, except for directors at least to be aware of the the problems that sound has, and to also listen with headphones a lot, so that they can actually hear what the the, the sound sound person is is hearing, so it can give them an informed judgment. So if they say, let's just go with the, the, the Lavaliers, we won't, we, won't, we won't put a boom in, they at least know what the sonic consequences of that are. I mean, I, I feel that we're, we, we, we're getting as close as we can to, to getting the Lavalier working as best it ever will, and I also agree with you that it, it's a compromise. But um, the only thing I can say is we, we're going to have to live with the Lavalier, especially now that we're in the world of multi-camera shots and that's something I wanted to talk about later on, is, is the way that more and more films now are being shot with multiple cameras, so that you might have a boom ready for this lovely close-up that camera A is doing, but it's completely stymied by the wide shot that camera B is doing you know, and again with multi-track this, this helps at least to get the signals recorded on separate tracks, but there, there is always going to be a level of compromise, unfortunately. I mean, I do shoots all the time where they have three and four cameras, yeah. and they're all, they're all 35 mil, they're all running with all their beautiful filters and lights and everything, yes. and we're being screwed yes. by the fact that they're shooting two close-ups, a medium and a wide. Yes. So what, are, what am I reduced to? Lapel mics. Absolutely. And I, and I know what you're talking about. I use the same, the yeah. same mics and yeah. I, I set them correctly. Yeah. But it's a compromise. Because Absolutely. Because in is. television, yeah. it sounds fine. Yeah, okay, yeah. a lapel mic and a boom mic is completely interchangeable. Yeah. Yeah. In the cinema, we all notice a difference. I mean, yes. Whether, yes. I mean, you or I will notice a difference, but yes. I mean, even the average person will, will, will hear a oh, difference. Oh, of course they will, yeah. In yeah. quality. Yeah. And that's yeah. A, it's a big compromise for us Absolutely. to make. And Absolutely. I don't know if, if that was done 20 years ago. Now it's like bugger it, just... just well, just 20 years put, ago, it's probably more... On is, is what they say, you know? Yeah, 20 years ago, I mean, single, yeah. single camera shooting was probably more prevalent. You know, it's only in the last... 10, 10 years or so, maybe maybe more, 15, that, that you've gotten into this multiple camera situation. But you can easily roll A and B and then C and D, you know? There's no yeah. need to roll them all at once. Right, yeah. And yeah. when you point out the fact that you're making cinema, not television, the DPs get very upset. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, who are you to talk? But they're yeah. the ones who are talking so loudly about their filters and lights. and Yes. You know what I'm saying? It's a very visual well, well, absolutely, medium. Yeah. And yeah. these days, the, the sound guys are like just... Maybe so. we should introduce the next clip. Yes. And okay. Ufo, you can set up the next clip uh, from When the Shakes the Barley. Yeah. I, I think this discussion about 
you know, the, the separation between the visual side and the sound side of productions is has been ongoing. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly destructive. Mm-hmm. And some people have managed to get around it through a certain collaborative effort. And I think yeah. you've been very lucky to work with directors and yeah. producers who do yeah. believe in this sort of... I don't know what you call it. It's not equality, it's not democracy, it's filmmaking. It's filmmaking, exactly, yeah. I mean, that is... To answer your question, I mean, I've been lucky because I've, 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 I have actually worked on films where the philosophy right from the, the beginning is that the sound ain't going to be ADR'd, that they will, they will do things to, to help the sound wherever possible. Um, however, <laughs> having said that, um, there are times even in the, the best worked out film where, where a director can get carried away sometimes with a particular scene where they do pull the cameras out, you know, the, the multi-cameras do go out and you do have a compromise. Um, I think the best thing to do in those situations is to obviously keep the relationship with the director but to always let them know what the ramifications are of what they're doing and then they can make a decision based on what they need. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you might have to take a back seat and you might have to say, look, We've got to, you've got to loop that scene because it, it just doesn't work. That, 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 that lavalier just doesn't work, you know, because we're cutting from this lav sound on this shot and we're coming straight round to a boom on the next shot and the, the quality difference is night and day and it just ain't going to work. And sometimes you, you've just got to, got to say, look, sorry, I've, I've done my best. This is the problem that you've got. It's then your, as the director, it's, it's your decision as to how you want to proceed. And sometimes you, you, it might be a visit to the looping studio, but unfortunately. I think what is interesting about that sequence, and it's an incredibly powerful sequence, riveting, and it, for me it's two reasons. One, dialogues are very clear. Every actor has a presence. Yes. Nobody is sort of falling into the screen. They're all coming out from it. Mm-hmm. And at the same time... It's mono, or roughly mono, mm-hmm. and there's an intensity of those voices mm. within the picture. Mm. You are going into the screen. Mm. They're not coming out around you into no, 5.1, no. which no. Yeah. I've just opened up a subject. That well, it's, about it's something that's interesting that we can yeah. talk about later. Don't we? Um, yeah. There's one gentleman who's had his hand up. If we take one question, yeah. then we'll go to the clip. Yes, sir. When you, when you say Ken doesn't want to use ADR, yes. does he also not want to use Foley? Um, no, he will use Foley. He so, will, in, yes. for instance, in that clip, there's... I mean, I noticed things like hats hitting, hitting yeah, the ground, yeah. which at the levels you must have been working at... Yeah, there's no way. Registered. No, absolutely not. Okay. No, 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 he will use Foley. Yeah, he just, just doesn't want the actors to come back in and have another bite of the cherry in, in, the, in an ADR studio. But actually, yeah. at the School of Sound, yeah. he did say he really didn't like using Foley. And no, somebody no. stood up and said, what about the footsteps? And he mm. said, what about the footsteps? Well, there's one scene yeah. in, in Land of Freedom, which yeah. is something that we go, go by a lot, which um, yeah. is a scene in a, in a prison cell. Yeah. We're, we're not going to see it today, but this prison cell, as far as the camera is concerned, this is a dungeon, stone floors and everything. In reality, it had stone walls, but it had floorboards on the floor. And for various reasons, i.e. to do with the strength of the joists, well, my, my first instinct was to get them to, to, to lay some flagstones so that when they walked across the floor, mm-hmm. it, was a, it was a floor. You know? yeah. uh, we couldn't put carpet down because the, the camera could mm. be, be looking at the floor at any point. 
So we either had to change the look of the floor with, with the reality of, of mm-hmm. stone, or we had to go with the floorboards. Mm. So we went with the floorboards. And in the, in the film, I, I still wince, because I can hear these, these clumpy yeah. footsteps yeah. all over the floor, but people are so taken by the, the content of the scene, they don't notice. Yeah. But from a purist point of view... You know, with another rewinding, yeah, I would have yeah. preferred to have the stone floor and just go go with the stone floor. Yeah. Sometimes, like I say, you've got to you've got to compromise a bit. As long as it doesn't get in the way of the dialogue no. mm. and the cutting, as long as it doesn't take you out of the film, no. mm. as long as you're not suddenly aware, my God, what, what's all that, that that clumping? You know, yeah. it's gone across a major line of dialogue. Yeah. Provided you can keep away from that, then that sometimes you just got to wear it. Yeah. You know. Would you like to introduce the clip from... Yeah, uh, this is a scene from uh, The Wind That Shakes the Barley, and it's a scene where the uh, where an ambush happens with the um, the auxiliaries are going through a, a valley, and the um, the heroes of our film set up an ambush. And, and what, the reason I wanted to show it, I don't know how much we'll, we'll get in, in this theatre, but uh, this was recorded on a four-track machine. This was actually Sound Devices... 422 I think mm-hmm. and on that machine I, I had two two channels I was using as I would be using with the old DATS or two channel machines but I'd reserved the other two channels on this scene for a, a dedicated ambience mic mm-hmm. which was a, a stereo Sherps mic on a 100 meter cable deliberately away from the direct dialogue so that it was just hearing the, the wind the, the, the sound of the place and um, well let's just play it and see, see if you can hear what effect it might have had.
Go down, check. Come go, cover Damien. Ken Loach has this odd effect he puts into every film. It's, it goes red and green, and yeah. you should work on his style. What was the method behind that? Well, I mean, I was just trying to give a sense of space, of place, because we, we come all the way out to this valley, and I was just trying to get a sense of literally the wind that's blowing through the, the tussock grass there, Ap- apart from the actual the dialogue between the, the soldiers mm-hmm. and the gunfire. Um, I just wanted to get a sense of, of where we were. Um, so I think they, they used a little bit of it in the dub, mm. just to give a sense of the wind is really blowing there. And it's, mm. it's not been laid afterwards. It was actually recorded. In right. fact, there's one point there where you can hear a, a disadvantage because someone shouts and you hear a bit of double miking happening. Uh-huh. Right. And that was the, the shout appearing on the, the ambience mic mm-hmm. without them slipping the ambience mic into place. I mean, that's right. always a problem. Right. If you've got an ambience mic out that picks up dialogue, then either, either you've got to, the, the person making the sound's got to be stationary mm-hmm. so that the time relationship remains the same yeah. and the sound editor knows to, to slip it, right. you know, so it yeah. fit it back. So that is a danger with that method. But the longer the cable, the less it becomes a problem. But, it, I mean, again, I guess this, from my point of view, this would be documentary training again, a sense well, of place. To a point, yeah, yeah, trying to get a sense of place. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of those government shots were, were added, Mm. I mean, they were spotted, yeah. but a good few of them were, were the real thing that mm. we were getting at the time. Mm. And I th- on a few of them, you can actually hear the, the slap off the, the sides yeah. of the valley a little yeah. bit. You yeah. know, I think I think Kevin, who did the sound edit, did a, an excellent job mm. getting the, the spotted sounds to match the the live sounds that I was right. getting at the same time. You know, and at the end, when we hear the quiet voices coming mm. in mm. Af- after the chaos has died down, yeah. those are all. Synchronous location. Yeah, it's in, it's in more or less in perspective. Yeah, that, I mean they really were shouting from like fifty meters away, mm. sometimes a hundred meters away, mm. and uh, and that I think that worked quite well, you know, because uh, it gives you a sense that they were spread over quite a long distance. Yeah, because Ken shoots with long lenses. Mm. A lot of times, those kind of spatial relationships are a bit confused. Well, uh, I was going to ask you that when you're recording, do you have a sense that you have to record this world? close-up sounds, the medium distance, and the far, that mm. I as a recordist am capturing the world. Well, the uh, well up to a point. I mean, yeah. the, the, f- the first and primary thing is getting the dialogue. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's what I'm there for. Yeah. So I've got, I've got to get the dialogue. Yeah. Job number one. Right. Once you've got the dialogue, then you can start thinking about abstracts, like, you know, yeah. where is this place, you know. Yeah. And a lot of times you, you never get to that point. Right. Your, your, your work's totally cut out getting, getting the dialogue. Mm. You know, I mean, you might come back to the location afterwards and get an atmos at the location, yeah. things like that. Or, you know, if you can, if you've got a sympathetic AD and there's enough hours in the day yeah. to get an atmos, you know, while you're there. Mm. But usually you're, you're just, you 
everything cut out to get the dialogue. That's that's another reason that I I tried to record that Atmos simultaneously mm-hmm. because if I did it properly, I didn't have to come back to the AD and say, look, I've got to hold it, you know, because yeah. we need the yeah. wind and the yeah. whatever. So I was trying I was trying to speed things up really. And there's really. also the fact that when you're on locations, you want to capture the particularity of that location as much rather as possible, than yeah. Having the sound editor rely on yes. um, CDs or web-based oh, uh, sound effects. Yeah, I mean, that's something in, in Hurt Locker we, we managed to yeah. really push to the, to the limit because we, we would be in the desert yeah. um, setting up. I remember one morning we were actually in the desert and I heard this particular little bug. Mm-hmm. I've not heard any bef- before and I've been in quite a few deserts. Mm. And I thought, that's a specific, you know. Yeah. Let's record it, you know. And it was really hard to record because it's this thing only moves when you move <laughs> so so you know it's, it's problematic but we i've got these little um one of these little um ssd recorders mm-hmm. a little eddy roll yeah with a glasses mics a couple of cos 11s on on glasses and i went out and baja my, my third went out mm-hmm. and he spent about an hour you mm. know, tiptoeing around trying to get this and it's only a, i think 45 seconds we got and Paul assures me, and I've heard it, that he did use it. There's one point where he used it. But again, it's trying to get a sense of that specific place yeah. and trying to get the sound of that particular desert. Because they all sound different, mm. you know, at a certain mm. level. Should we take just a couple questions and then go on to Hurt Locker? Gentleman in the front. Yeah. Uh, since you're talking about recording ambiences on set, mm-hmm. I'm assuming you're recording... Um, multi-channel ambiences for using surround as well well yeah i wanted to talk about that a bit later yeah i mean i am now i wasn't then i mean i was i was recording um um stereo ambiences and a lot of people i spoke to in post said they're quite happy they'd rather have a good stereo track than a bad 5.1 track you know they'd they'd rather have uh, well i didn't have a 5.1 facility plus more importantly i didn't have enough channels to record 5.1 onto you know um, it takes six channels to do it properly. Um, so I would be recording um, as good as possible stereo tracks at that time. Yeah. Does, that, does that answer? Yeah, I was just wondering about the techniques you use when you record. Ambiences? Am- I mean, for, for, for use with surround. With surround? Yeah, are you recording uh, with the MS technique? Or? Yeah, I mean, I use, I use a, an MS pair of, um, of shirts. And, and there's this whole issue about MS and post-production. And it comes from the analog um, Dolby matrix because um, it's very phase-dependent. And lots of times, lots of dubs have gone wrong because you've supplied something with, with you know, out-of-phase elements. And, and there's out-of-phase elements anyway, you know, in, in, in life. But, but particular combinations will, will, will throw sound uncontrollably out onto the surrounds if you're mixing for the Dolby analog. Now, um, I had a conversation with Paul, who was the sound editor on, on Hurt Locker, and he also came up against this, this issue, um, and he said, no, I've got made an artistic... Me and Catherine have made an artistic decision here that what we want is if a character offset is coming in from camera right, but they're not in vision yet, I want the freedom to pan them to the right because that was breaking a, a great orthodoxy, that dialogue comes from the centre only. So he was actually breaking some rules in order to do that. And his, check, his, um, his take on that was, look, 
I know that there is a percentage of theatres that are going to be showing this using the analogue matrix. I'm sorry, but the, the larger percentage now are using discrete 5.1, and I want to use it as an artistic way of expression. So if I want to pan something left, then I'm going to pan it left, and it's going to come in. And, and with that, um, with, with, with discrete, all these phase problems become a thing of the past because uh, MS, whatever you like, whatever mic combination works. I mean, I use different mic combinations depending on the situation. You know, like sometimes, for instance, pubs, pub atmosphere's, I find they work better with, with a couple of spaced omnis, you know, quite widely spaced. You know, sometimes, you know, 10, 10 15 feet between them. And its techniques vary according to the situation you're in. So there's no one technique fits all. So basically, I'm, I happen to be using an MS pair on that. I mean, I could have used a couple of um, a couple of omnis, but for various logistical reasons, it was easier for me to put one mic stand height hidden, you know, with a MS pair on, than, than find space to hide two 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 omnis. We're going to have to move on to the next clip. Sure. Okay. Kurt Locker. Okay. Want to give it a, a brief intro? Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is this is for, for me. I mean, this was the scene in the Hurt Locker where where we were pushed to our limits. I mean, it was a cantar, six individual channels, um, and all six were used for, for microphones. They, they, they for, for personal mics because there's so much going on in it. So there's probably a bit less ambience than I would have liked. But um, the fact that we were able to to divide up this fast-acting scene, I just wanted to put it as a contrast mm -hmm. to the Land and Freedom clip, just to see what we managed to do. I mean, lots of people have done things to this level as well, but it's, it's, it's um, a complement to multi-track set recording. If it's, you know, it's the options that you've got now mm -hmm. with multi-track set recording enable you to do a sequence like the one you're about to see. And have, did you also record a lot of wild tracks that found their way into this sequence? Um, I mean, there was the calls to prayer, things like yeah. that. But uh, in this scene, you're so riveted by what's going on. Yeah. Um, the ambience is around. I mean, Paul, I'd supplied Paul with lots and lots of Baghdad sounds, lots of marketplace passing traffic. You know, we recorded reams and reams and reams and reams of it. Um, so it's very likely that in this scene, he's crept in a lot of those tracks, but mm. I wasn't recording them at the time. I was, you know, hard pushed to just get the yeah. the various characters mic'd up and, and working as well as I could. And what we're um, hearing is location sound. This is location sound. It's yeah. not been ADR'd? As far as I know. Okay. I think one line has been ADR'd, actually. Uh -huh. I won't tell you which one okay. to the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, Fab, could we have this clip, please? Heard it begins uh, with one scene and then leads into the scene I'm trying to uh, illustrate. Looking for trouble. 
to get your fucking adrenaline fix, you fuck! And take care of yourself, boy. Come on, six, man. See you on the other side, man. Alright. Let's get out of this fucking desert! But the bomb was forced on him! Get Don't back! Move. Don't move! Stay still! If you keep walking, we will shoot you! If you keep walking, we will shoot! Get that translator back now! He's not a bad man! Give him room! Give him room! What do you got? He came walking up to a checkpoint, said he had a bomb strapped to him. But he's sorry, he doesn't want it to go off. Then he starts begging us to take it off of him. Right. Help this man, he's not a bad man. He's not a bad man. He got a bomb strapped to him. This is a joke, he's trying to pull us closer. Yeah, I got it, I got it. All right, look, tell him to open his shirt slowly. And to see what's inside. Slowly, slowly. Slowly! Slowly! Ah, oh, Jesus. All right, Sergeant, I need 75 meter perimeter. Get these guys back. Get them back. Get back. You tell him to get on his knees and touch the sky, okay? Get down. Okay. Need your radio. Can we just shoot him? No, he's a family man. He's not a bad man. He's just asking for help. Only help. Yeah, all right. Look, just get back. Look, everyone else. I want to die. Get back. I got it. Listen, I know we've had our differences. Hell, just like it happened, all right? It's water under the bridge. Okay, this is suicide, man. That's what they call a suicide bomb, right? He says the bomb may have a timer. Please hurry. <coughs> We're good. You right now? Yep. Go get him. Let's do it. See you. Watch for snipers, yep. huh? Get your hands up. He says he has a family. Please help. I'm a family. Atfal. Look, it'd be a lot easier for me to disarm this if I just shoot you. Do you understand? What's he saying? He says, I don't wish to die. I have a family. Please take this off me. I will tell him to put his hands behind his head or I'll be very happy to shoot him. Look, that's not what I said. Tell him to put his hands behind his head or I will shoot him. Listen. Listen. Yes, yes. Yes. You understand. Okay. Oh. What do you got here? And the He has four children. 
Shit. Come listen. Come listen, Psalm. Sam Warren, we got a timer. We got a lot of wires, man. I'm gonna need a little help with this. Roger that. Tell me what you need. Uh, the bolt cutters. But you gotta get down here in two minutes. We're all fucked. Roger that. I'll be there in 30 seconds. Sorry, Ali. Please, I have a family. I know, I know, just. It's okay, you're alright, you're alright. Please don't leave me. You weren't a fucking kid. Nope. What's his main out of? Oh man, this case hard and steel. Shit! What's our time? We got two minutes. We need a torch to get this off. Well, we don't have one of those in a fucking truck, man. You're a dead man. Hold on, let me think. Just let me think. Let's handle this. We're gonna have it. It's okay. We got this. We got this. Good luck, Okay. I'm listening. Let me look at the back. Yeah. We don't got enough time, Sam. We don't got enough time. I just gotta, I gotta get these bolts off. No. We had a minute and a half, man. We gotta get out of here. No. I'll handle this. Just, just go. Look, Will. Come on, I'm, man. I'm, look, I'm right behind you. Just go. Fuck him. Come on. No, no, no. Sam, what I got the suit. Just go. Sam, Sam well, you have 45 no, no, seconds. You have 45 seconds, Sam. Or leave. You're a fucking dead man, Will. No. Go. No. Everybody get back. Hi, no. There's too many locks. There's too many. I can't. That's enough excitement for me. <laughs> but that red again. Everybody's using it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry about that. I, in a way, it made it easier to listen to the sound. Mm -hmm. um, I. What can you say about that? I, well, no, it, I mean, it, I, all, I, all I wanted to say was yeah. um, that scene. Obviously, multiple camera. One, one camera in close, but also lots of, lots of different perspectives, lots of ways that people could be talking. I mean, it was scripted, but obviously there's lots of working around the script. Um, I had to make sure that everybody was mic'd at all times because of the way the scene's constructed and the, this, this interplay between the translator mm -hmm. and uh, Sergeant James and the, the man with the bomb strapped on. He had to be mic'd all the time. And in fact, Paul has made use of the fact he's away on his own track it's on the wide shots to add a little bit of artificial echo mm -hmm. you know to give him some perspective to get rid of that perspective yeah. and the sound of the radio mics but um it was really that's the sort of detail that i would have liked to have been able to put in the earlier clip mm. you know the fact that everybody's mic'd all the time and it's recorded on discrete tracks and do you uh, this is an aesthetic question i think i know what your answer is but do you think you can uh, you can start getting too much discreteness, yeah. and that you yeah. lose a certain Absolutely, something? Yeah, I mean, I think you can go into ridiculous realms where you know you're trying to mic everybody in a scene, yeah. and they're all mics, as, as someone said earlier. With these mics, as well as they're put on, they aren't the best sounding yeah, mics in yeah. the world. Plus, also, I mean, you've, you're, it's like juggling plates with radio mics, mm. even though you're using good ones. You know that that are you know 
pretty pretty good range, mm-hmm. good compressors and everything. Every now and again, you make mistakes. There are a few mistakes in that. I mean, there mm. there are scenes where where James has got the bomb suit on. I can't remember if it was mic'd above or below, mm-hmm. but there's a particular bit where he's right down mm. on the mic, and it sort of starts sounding a bit like yeah, that. Yeah. And when I watch it, I kind of wince a bit because I think, oh God, you know, second go at that, I would yeah. have done something else. But you know, I had to sacrifice the the absolute fidelity in order to cover the scene. Yeah. You know. Obviously, it would have been nice to have booms in everywhere. Sure. Um, Qu- question, non-technical. Mm. You've, you've gone very quickly from, well, like I said, three years ago we were talking at the School of Sound. You, Graham Hartstone from Pinewood, Ken mm. Loach. Middle budget, British filmmaking at its best, you mm-hmm. were talking about. Ken Loach's work. Um, quite almost a club atmosphere to the kind of collaboration mm. you do. Mm. Then you get asked to work with Catherine Bigelow mm. on Hurt Locker, mm. completely different realm of filmmaking. Mm. Do you go to her and say, hello, I'm Ray Beckett, I'm going to tell you what I do, um, and here's um, how I work? Yeah, well, first thing, I mean, Hurt Locker, as you might have seen, mm. hasn't made any money, well, um, <laughs> or hardly any money, because, I mean, by, by Hollywood standards, mm. that was a low-budget film. Of course, yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, we, she had to... She had to cut a cloth according to how much money she had mm. it's interesting to know the path she might have taken had she had a bigger budget on that right she may have taken a completely different path yeah um no i mean what happened that as far as i understand was obviously barry was hired by catherine because catherine had seen united 93 mm-hmm. and she liked his style mm-hmm. cinematography um you know barry recommended me mm-hmm. she independently saw wind that shakes the barley and a couple of other Ken's films and, and liked the sound that I'd managed to get on those films. And then she didn't speak to me directly, but her sound designer, Paul, did, mm-hmm. which was more important, really, yeah. you know, because she, she deferred to Paul. So we had these long telephone conversations about our philosophy. And I said, you know, on scenes like that, I want to separate the elements, mm. plus also give you as much as possible of background sounds so that you can layer them. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. and, and that's what... I think we we were singing off the same hymn sheet. Yeah. You know, we both wanted to approach it in the same way. You know, right. lo- lots and lots of atmos tracks, basically. Right. Yeah. Do we have a moment for a couple of questions? Yeah, um, we're running a little bit late. If any, I, I would encourage anybody who's not a film technician, if you have any questions too for for uh, Ray. Um, yes. Hi. This is sound designer. I'm sound recorder. Yeah. I'm doing so. Um, when you're doing uh, sound design, is it best to lay down the um, sound design and then the music or the other way around? Well, I can't really answer that because I'm a set recordist. Set recordist. Yeah, okay. I mean, I, I, I deal with basically the dialogues and, okay. and some of the effects, so... Um, I mean, I'd like to... to I, I have sat in on lots of sessions because yeah. I think it's, it's really important for anybody who wants to be a, a, an on-set recordist, <coughs> uh, production mixer, that you, you know what's going to go on the next yeah. stage, otherwise you, you're, you're singing into a, a black hole, yeah. oblivion, you know. Uh, it's really important to have that feedback between, you know, set production and post-production. Um, I think it's probably good to have done a little bit of track laying yourself because it, it helps to know what is and what isn't possible as well. Yeah. You know, rather than asking for the three-minute Atmos, to know that actually I could get away with half of that let the, let the crew get on with what they need because I know that in this particular case 
we can loop that Atmos, it's e- even enough, whatever. Yeah. So, um, so I can't really answer your question specifically. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Hi, uh, I'm interested to know in that scene, the man with the bomb. Yeah. Uh, how many different sound sources or microphones were used to capture his dialogue? Because I just one. Just really. Cause yeah. It, it sounds like I can count about three different textures. Yeah. Well, on where where you are. Yeah. Well, that was that was added by Paul. I mean, because. The, spatially, there's it, certainly in the earlier part of the scene, he's out there in the middle of the square on his own. There's no interaction with any of the other mics. So um, Paul, the sound designer, had a wonderful chance. He's got an isolated source. He can do what he likes with it. He can put any effect he wants on it. I mean, he did a lot of work on those those dialogue tracks. He did a, a lot of DSing. I mean, one of the problems with personal mics is this 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 sibilance that comes even with the best personal mics. They, they've got this presence peak. In them, built into the design because of where they where they end up being, you know, somewhere around there or here. So they're designed to have a, a peak in their presence. That the booms aren't. Booms are generally designed to have a, a fairly even response. You know, some like the four one six does have a bit of a height mid range top end. Um, but the the thing is that the um, the way that the mic is placed on the on the actor. Um, has a lot to do with the, 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 the sound quality that you will get from it. But also um, the way that the, um, the post-production can deal with it is also important. The, the, what you're trying to do, basically, is you're trying to get the boom to sound as good as a... Uh, the, the personal mic to sound as good as a boom. It's a hiding to nothing. You can, you can get in the ballpark. And then... <coughs> the post-production tools that we've got now, all the plugins for Pro Tools and all the other things, they can then get into the into that sound, provided it's isolated. Like they can kick out that that top that peak. They can they can contour something to counteract it, to try and flatten the sound. They can limit it if they need to. They they can add reverb. I mean, on, on one of the shots there, that mic, even though it was a radio mic, he's added a little bit of slap echo to to give the mm. sense of depth in that particular shot. And it's the sort of thing that can only be done in post-production because only he knows what the, the shot that's going to be over. Mm. That, that shot might equally have been over a big close-up, you know. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Yeah. Gentleman right at the back. I had a meeting with the director yesterday and yeah. when he asked me if I'd be prepared to shoot his film without a boom operator, I thanked him kindly <laughs> and told him I was in the wrong meeting. Yeah. <laughs> I just wondered for the uninitiated in here, if you just give us a word on how important your boom operator is. Absolutely, with pleasure. Uh, I think you made absolutely the right decision there. Um, it's it's a, the relationship between the mixer and the boom operator is a is a vital one. You know, it's an absolutely vital one, and the boom operator doesn't doesn't get the kudos that is due to them. I mean, on a lot of films, the, the final quality has more to do with the skills of the boom operator than it has to do with the mixer. I mean, sometimes a single boom, what do you do? It's coming down the line, you make sure it gets recorded right. The boom operator has got to work on set with, with the lighting department, looking for shadows, has got to skillfully get that boom into the right position, changing actors. And also, there's a sort of a, almost like a ballet, a, a good boom operator working a set, or, or maybe even two boom operators when it works well as a ballet, where they're, they're working, they're looking for shadows, keeping away from the shadows. They're also matching perspective. I mean, one of the problems with radio mics is we're losing perspective in films. Everything <coughs> is this single radio mic perspective. Is it's a wide shot, 
a tight shot. And it, it comes as a result of um, of multi-camera shooting. You know, the way the way that um, multi-cameras constrain you, as we were saying earlier, you're, you're stuck with getting getting the, the the sound for the tight shot over the wide shot. Or the wide shot here can only be used when that wide shot's on camera. You, you can't use it all the time. Um, the boom swinger is being crowded out by the fact that people want to put radios on because they feel that that's more dramatic. But actually, what they're ending up with is a film that doesn't have any sonic perspective in it. There's, there's nothing to feel mm. the difference between a wide shot and a tight shot. You don't get a feeling of there-ness. And as much as all the plugins are good, you can't, you can't, nothing will, will be better mm. than a good mic swung by a good boom swinger. And also, there's that personal relationship, the the the, the, the having person on set watching rehearsals while you're moving, moving set. Mm. So I would say, I mean, if boom swingers go, then it will be to everybody's detriment because they are absolutely essential. They're the they're, they're the other hand, you know. I'm one hand, and the boom swing is the other hand. I, I was you telling can't... you before that I had seen the uh, the ghost, the Polanski film, mm. and hearing the sound mixer talking about it, and saying that you know, uh, in terms of sound design, it's not a a tour de force. It's very good, mm. and very exciting, but it's not very flashy. But the quality of the voices, mm. which are basically location recordings, mm. are absolutely. Uh, they have such a depth. Yes. It's like listening to an opera. Yes, yes, and that yes. just adds to the dramatic yeah. input. Absolutely. Of the film. Yeah, I mean, I'd say, I mean, uh, uh, on that on that subject, while it's in my mind, listen to Inglorious Bastards. Mm. Uh, Tarantino used Mark Ulano, who, who's a fantastic dialogue recordist, you know, and with a fantastic team. Fan- um, and the quality of the dialogue in that film is fantastic because the mics, it's all boomed, and the mics are aren't just in the area, they're actually in the sweet spot because every mic, as, as good as they are, there's a point where they're on mic, usable, and then there's another point, maybe a degree or so, where they're actually in what, in the States, they call it the sweet spot of the sound, where, where the, the mic's working at its absolute tops, and lots of times the, 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 the boom swing wears headphones, so they, they're getting feedback about the output of their own boom. But when it's done well... And when it's, you know, sometimes two booms done well, it's, you, you can't beat it. You know, it's just fantastic sound quality. And it also gives the emotion of the scene more. You know, characters move. Mm. You can hear them moving in the seat. Sometimes the seat creaks. Yeah. doesn't matter yeah. if, if it doesn't mar the dialogue. Yeah. all adds to the mm. illusion that you're there. Um, yeah. One more question. You, because you've had your hand up. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not a, a sound technician. I'm fascinated by um, the whole of this debate. Mm. Um, I, I'm also fascinated by what I think is a discrepancy between what you are saying, which seems to be absolutely um, uh, the, the, the quality statement of uh, every um, sound design you could ever want to hear. The boom operator is, is absolutely indispensable. But then you compare it to the Hurt Locker, which I think you, you said there was absolutely no booming. No, no, there's not. That's not in, in that scene... Um, we we had Simon Bish, my boom swinger, was active. I, I didn't. I did. I, yeah, that gives me a chance to correct a misconception. I, we basically had radio mics on key actors, but as important, more important than that, a lot of times was Simon 
who was there all the time with a with a radio boom that was set up um, to give the best dynamic range for the scene in hand. So if it was a quiet scene, we, we'd, we'd boost, get the best signal-to-noise ratio on the, the link. And he would be there all the time with, with Barry, working in that wonderful documentary way, mm. filling in the gaps for me. You know, because sometimes, I mean, you, we couldn't use the helmet mic all the time, nor would I want to, but there'd be scenes where characters aren't even wearing a, a helmet mic. And, and, you know, that combination of radio mics... And an intelligent boom swinger who can see where the gaps are likely to be and helps you fill them. And in fact, I mean, I was happy lots of times. I'd, I'd solo his, his boom, and I'd be quite happy with that. You know, job done. But you'd also have the radio mics in reserve if for any, for any reason you needed them. Hmm. So, I mean, really, you know, the boom swinger is indispensable. I would be really nervous to do any film. I, well, I'd, I'd agree with the chap at the back. I'd... I wouldn't be doing a film if there was no boom swing on it. It's not. I think we're going to have to wrap up there. Yeah, Do we have to wrap up there? <laughs> one more Can we go a little bit longer? There's one question. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> completely different side. Uh, I'm director, and uh, uh, I really care about sound. This is a very, very important thing. But what I found very uh, difficult recently, I shot my film two months ago, and uh, during the pre-production time, I managed to find uh, a really good cinematographer, really good um, equipment for the filming, but I had a very big problem with um, sound recorders and sound people whatsoever. The point is that um, I'm going from the uh, independent filmmaking, and uh, it's all the micro-budget filming. Mm, mm. And... um, mm, what can I say? I just can ask you maybe for some advice. Well, I mean, what to do in this yeah, I mean, it's 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 compounded when you're in in that budget level because it becomes even more important for you to have good sound because you're not going to even have an ADR budget even if you wanted to ADR. Mm. And I think you need to find that that very special person who's who's got a spark of talent who really wants to make their name in sound recording who, who sees it as a vocation who has the the right equipment. Obviously, you, your philosophy when you made the film was was very pro sound. So, presumably, you would be willing to 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 make sure that the sets were quiet, that all those those things were taken care of. Uh, the only thing I can say is good luck to find a, a sound recordist who can live up to what you need. You know, I, I can give you some names who <laughs> <laughs> will work very well for you. There are several in this room that, mm. that would love to work with yeah. you. Good luck for the future. Um, okay. Okay. This gentleman right here. Um, hi, Ray. I just hi. had a question. Um, what are the main sort of technical differences between working for an American production and a British production in terms of sound and how you interface with post-production? the ones and zeros and what you're expected to deliver yeah yeah well that that's the real hornet's nest i mean i'm lucky because we're working in film we're not on tape and um the problem problem comes as soon as you get away from our nice 25 frames world is what you do with the time code books have been written about time code drop frame whatever um we had the benefit again going back to the pre-production of actually talking to the, the people in, in, in London, actually, who were doing the telecine. That was my first link, was to talk to telecine, to see what they wanted me to deliver. It's so important on the film, before you turn over, that ideally, that you've, you've worked out a workflow, 
that you've actually done a sync test using that workflow and everybody's happy because there's nothing worse than having the first <coughs> of rushes when all the producers, everybody involved, going to want to sit down and just see what performances they've got to be delayed by some glitch in the sound with the sample rate set wrong or the time code setting set wrong. It's so important to get that stuff thrashed out before day one. And that's where a production meeting is so important, where everybody talks to each other. You, you know exactly what's going to happen to your, your DVD RAM, your, your hard drive, however you're going to be delivering it when it hits post. Because so many times there's no communication between the set and post. And in that gap comes a, an awful lot of sometimes very expensive problems. And the, the easier you can get that sorted, the better. Going back to your question, I mean, the difference between Europe and America is usually in Europe you're watching on an Avid with 25-frame uh, PAL screen. So generally, I mean, the European films that I've worked on, it's easy. I, I'm just 25-frame, no drop on the time code. For the States, you, you've got something like 2997, no drop, I think, was what we used on Hurt Locker. Um, that was how we, we set it, because that's what they needed for their Avid, because they were on a 30-frame Avid. I, I won't go into the, the technicalities, because I'm basically, I set it to the way they asked me to set it. But, I mean, I know that there are lots and lots of places on the internet where there are discussions about what settings to use for which situation. And there, no two jobs are the same. You know, you, you might go along and find a, a, a camera that's running at a different speed for some reason. And you, you've got to set it all right. And Did you, you just offer a, a monomix to your dailies and then split the ISOs out? No, I didn't. No, I, I split the ISOs out and I, I actually tried to build up a a basic mix in my headphones because that's the way I like to work and that's the way the editors liked it. I mean, I know that there's this thing of, of booms on the on the left saying radios mi mic'd, mixed together on the right. But I, I worry, when, I, when I'm mixing radio mics, I know there's that sort of locked-in comb filter thing that you get that you can't get rid of. I know you can get rid of it later, but I've had conversations with producers where they go, oh, God, that sounded a bit naff. And then you've got to go back through... But yeah, it sounds enough now because we're commoning tracks that shouldn't be commoned. And what, what I try to do on the mix track is to give a mix as if I didn't have the ISO tracks, using that old experience of mm -hmm. working two track, even, even panning the way I want it. So a stereo ambience panned into my headphones with the radio mics usually straight down the center and the booms mixed in as you, as you wish as well. Um, it's, I, I just feel more comfortable working that way. Were you in touch with the editor? Yeah, the editor yeah. was. There were one of the editors was in the, um, in um, in Jordan. Um, yeah. They had Navid set up there, right. and they were doing a rough cut as we right. went. Yeah, yeah. The last question: Who is the last person, Saskia? Who? I don't know. I saw two people on this row. Somebody have a question. That gentleman there. Um, going back to things about perspective and yeah. following the camera perspective, what microphones do very well is give the audience a very direct relationship with the actors and the story you, and being told on the screen as well. Mm -hmm. um, are there any sort of common uh, philosophies and pre-production talks about whether to follow the camera perspective or to give make sound follow uh, give another perspective that the camera well, yeah, the, necessarily this, doesn't have. These arguments about perspective, for me, I mean, they, they work if you're working single camera. When you're working double camera or, or multiples beyond, beyond just the one, 
these perspective things become a, a hornet's nest because what camera you matching perspectives to? A camera, okay. But what happens if B camera wants to shoot a wider shot than A camera does? You know what? Now what might who am I doing perspective for? And the best you can do is using the multi-channel recorders is to is to get the sound for the close shots as well as you can. And unfortunately, that probably will mean using well-placed radio mics. And then use the boom to cover your, your, your widest shot, you know. And hope, hope that when it's track laid, that they'll be using that wider shot. I mean, it's, it's sad to be talking like this because, you know, back in the old days when it was a single camera, you knew where you were. You knew, you knew that you were working the perspectives, you know. But it, it has become a multi-camera world, unfortunately. And I think sometimes when you're planning a film... Um, it's worth thinking about whether it's worth going multi-camera or going single camera. Because I've, I've seen setups actually when the lighting issues with multi-camera have been so complicated that by the time they've resolved the two cameras vis-a-vis -vis lighting, they could have actually shot it with a single camera, been quite happy, and had the sound being quite happy as well. You know, so if you're, if you're developing a film, it's worth thinking, do I really need multi-camera on this? You know, is it just a style statement I'm making? What am I gaining? And it's television, I think. You know, I mean, it's, it's dangerous because this multi-camera thing comes from television. You know, the fact that you've got all these different... And they're different beasts. You know, cinema, obviously, it's obvious, but cinema and television are different things. And sometimes, if, if by using the television syntax, you're losing some of that thing, like you're saying, of perspective then I think it's a sad loss because it's one of the things through film history that is, is, is been really important, it's you know. The listener's perspective as well. Like the listener's you're, you're perspective. listening to a story from a particular viewpoint yes. or from yes. another character's viewpoint or from a third yes. person perspective Yes, as well. that's right. I mean, with, with Ken, I'm finally, just summing up, I mean, I said on that there were, there were two cameras, you know, and he has shot multi-camera, but only because on scenes of that kind of size, you know, you had to. Basically, but I mean, Ken would always use a single camera, a single perspective. He's trying to get, he says, the perspective of an intelligent observer on the <laughs> outskirts of the action is, is what he's trying to portray, you know. So I think let's, let's have single camera. <laughs> I think that's a very good point to stop. Okay. Intelligent observer, yes. Mm -hmm. um, thank you, Ray. Okay. Thank you, everybody thank you. here. Thanks, everyone. Uh,